Good morning. My name is Tommy Allen. I'm the pastor of New Hope Presbyterian Church, and this is April 19th. Welcome to our live stream, or as I affectionately call it, sweatpants Sunday school. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I thought I would start this morning um, before we jump into our teaching, right? We're not doing the whole full orb worship thing, um, but I'm trying to add the uh, pieces of it. And so we haven't done this yet. And so I thought I would start this morning instead of opening with a reading of scripture or call to worship, but rather open with a confession of sin. And so how that works is I'll read the confession of sin. Typically, if we were in church, I would give people time to, to confess their sins silently. Um, if you want to pause the live stream and do that, you can. Um, otherwise, I'm just going to pray and continue on with the teaching. So let's pray. God, my Father, I thank you for the riches I have in Jesus, for the unclouded vision of him in your word, where I behold his person, character, grace, and glory, his humiliation, sufferings, death, and resurrection. Grant that I may never forget my need of his salvation and cry with Job, I am vile. With Isaiah, I am undone. With the publican, be merciful to me, a sinner. I come to you with nothing of my own to plead. No works, no worthiness, no promises. Instead, I come in the all-prevailing name of Jesus. I plead his works, his worthiness, and his promises with the assurance that in him you are well pleased with me. Amen and amen. And it's my privilege to tell you that if you, in fact, confess your sins to Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive them. And so I would say to you, know that you are forgiven and be at peace. Let me pray for us. Father, I just pray now that you would come as we uh, talk about your word and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. And I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding, and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, we're jumping back in to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to open with a question today, and the, the question is similar to others, and basically the question is this, do you have any enemies? Now, most of you, when I ask that question, you, you don't immediately say, yeah, I got a lot of enemies, or maybe you sort of t took it uh, global, where you could say, well, yeah, Muslim terrorists are my enemies, or something like that, but l let's let's bring it like really close to home this morning. Um, what do you think would happen if you walked into Trader Joe's this weekend? Remember, I'm, in, I'm just outside of Seattle, if you're watching this on the East Coast. Um, if you walked into Trader Joe's this afternoon wearing a MAGA hat, right? One of those red Donald Trump, Make American Great Again hats. What do you think would happen if you walked into sweet, liberal Trader Joe's in Seattle wearing a MAGA hat? My guess is that within 30 seconds, you would be assaulted. You'd be attacked, at least verbally, if nothing else. In other words, right underneath the skin of all the sweet suburban moms is sort of a, a hatred, right? And, and it could be of anything. I don't want to pick on them. But the, the point is, is a lot of us say we don't have enemies. But in fact, um, a lot of us maybe have it in ourselves to be enemies. And so this morning, the teaching from the Sermon on the Mount is really the culmination of, of, a, of what Jesus has been talking about all through chapter 5. If you remember, basically in chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus started talking about the law. He, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And basically, he said that all of the, the law and the prophets point to him. And he said that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, our righteousness had to be better than 
the people who understood the law the best, the scribes and the Pharisees. And what he was really getting at is that the scribes and the Pharisees had sort of mastered an outward conformity to the law. They looked good. They knew the right things to say. They knew the right people. They knew all the things. But inwardly, there was a problem. And so Jesus then took on six different topics to show them the difference between sort of outward conformity to the law and inward conformity to the law. Remember, to this point, he's looked at anger. He looked at lust. He looked at divorce, uh, the topic of oaths, and then revenge and retaliation. And then the last one really is like, because you get to, to the end and say, wow, he's telling me I shouldn't retaliate against my enemies. What, what could be worse than that, right? And the very next one, he talks about loving our enemies. And so that really would have been mind-blowing for, for the people of the ancient Near East. And frankly, I'm guessing today it's going to be mind-blowing for you because it is for me. Uh, we're going to look at three things this morning. And we're going to look at a made-up law. We're going to look at a radical command. And then finally, we're going to look at an attainable standard. Typically, that last point is, is talked about in terms of being an unattainable standard. I think you have it in you, and I'm going to tell you why. So this morning, first thing we look at in uh, verse 43 of chapter 5, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I'm going to read the whole thing. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, verse 43 is when Jesus, is, he, his pattern basically is to say, you've heard it said, but I say, right? And so this morning he says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that particular sentence, as it is, is nowhere in the, in the Bible. It's nowhere in the whole Old Testament. And basically the command Jesus is addressing is a conflation of two ideas. And the, the first idea, of course, is loving your neighbor, right? It's in a lot of places in the Old Testament, it says that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19 is one of those. Now the problem is Israel would read those texts that say you should love your neighbor or love your neighbor as yourself. And they read those texts very narrowly. In other words, for Israel, their neighbor was like, it was a super narrow concept. That would be like, imagine this, the way you would read it if you're a Presbyterian. You'd say, well, as far as I can tell, it says love your neighbor, which means my neighbor are just Presbyterians. And then you sort of narrowed it and said, well, actually, my neighbor is really evangelical Presbyterians, my denomination. And then you'd say, well, maybe really my neighbor is not just Presbyterians, it's not Presbyterians, it's not everyone in the EPC, but it's everyone at New Hope Presbyterian Church. And then maybe you even narrowed it down and say, well, it's not even everyone at New Hope, it's just people that are in my community group. And then maybe you narrowed it down even more and said, maybe it's just people in my family, that's the only people I really need to love. That's who my neighbor is, I mean, they're right here. You see how easy that actually gets, but how, how by narrowing the concept of neighbor, you're making that command incredibly easy. Enough that the commands should be hard in and of themselves, but we shouldn't like take away from them either. So where did the, the idea of hating their enemy come from? Basically in the Old Testament, you only get it by inference, right? Sort of in Deuteronomy 26, I believe there's this inference 
where remember the Ammonites didn't help Israel when they were leaving Egypt on their exodus. And God says, you should never seek their peace. And people say, well, that they must want us to hate them. And really the idea is also people would, would, would imply it from imprecatory Psalms. So for example, um, Psalm 69, what is an imprecatory Psalm? An imprecatory Psalm is where you are praying uh, uh, in the Psalms, you're praying for some justice to come upon your enemies, maybe some harm to come upon your, your enemy even. But in other words, that they're gonna get their just reward. So for example, uh, Psalm 69 is a great example. 22, the psalmist says, let their own table, he's talking about his enemies, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, right? And he goes on. In other words, the psalmist is basically asking God to, to bring vengeance upon his enemies. Now, notice he's praying for them. He's not doing it. So you can imagine um, how with those kind of psalms, people would easily assume, especially given our nature, right? If someone strikes us, we want to strike them back. And then we see psalms where people are praying against their enemies. And you would assume that that hating your enemy was like cool. And now the difference between the way they read love your neighbor and hate your enemy, guess what it is, right? They read love your neighbor very narrowly and they read hate your enemy very broadly, right? So anyone who is outside of my camp, anyone who I didn't know would be my enemy, at least potentially. Now, how do we resolve all this? Where's Jesus gonna go with all this? How do you, how do you figure this out? I think the easiest way is, is if you really define who your neighbor is, then you can understand who your enemy is. And so if you ask the question, who is my neighbor? I think that's gonna take you to a place where you need to be. And fortunately in Luke chapter 10, a lawyer already asked that question for us. So if you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, I'm gonna read that to you. So remember the setup, Jesus is, is teaching. And so it says in verse 25 of chapter 10 of Luke, um, it says, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And then verse 29, but right? Whenever you see but in the Bible or anywhere, really get rid of everything that came before it. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? In, in other words, he thought he knew the answer and he thought like Jesus was going to say, it's all the people around you. And he's going to say, oh, I love them like crazy. I'm good to go. Wah, wah. So Jesus replied, whenever Jesus replies to you a simple question with a story, you're in trouble, by the way. He says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. 
if whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So what's the, how do we summarize that parable, put it more in our terms. So the, the, a, a man, a Jewish man was traveling. He was set upon by robbers. He was beaten and left for dead. And so along the road on, comes a priest. You'd think a priest would help a Jewish man who's beaten half to death. But apparently he didn't want to be implicated if he was dead. He didn't want to become unclean because Jews had all these laws about that. And so the priest saw the man who was hurt and he passed on the other side of the road. And the next person who came along was a Levite. Now, well, who is a Levite? Levites assisted priests in worship. So that would be like a, a staff person at church. So a church person comes along and sees him and they're like, mm, sketchy. And so they go to the other side and they keep walking. And it says along comes a Samaritan. Now, what, what's the big deal about a Samaritan? Well, the Samaritans were the, were the mortal enemies of the Jews. At least that's the way the Jews looked at it. Uh, there's a... a a translation of the Bible years ago, back in the 60s, written called the Cotton Patch Gospels. And the way this parable was told then was basically it set in the South, in Jim Crow South, right? Where there was still segregation. And it would basically, a white man was beaten and left on the side of the road. And a white man walked by and passed him by. And another white guy walked by and passed him by. And then a black man came and actually helped him, showed him mercy, put him on his horse, took him to an inn, paid for everything. People would have been shocked to hear this. And yet the implication was abundantly clear because notice the question Jesus asked. Verse 36, he asked this lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? 37, he said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, do you see what Jesus did there? What Jesus did, instead of, instead of, letting the lawyer or set of himself defining neighbor in terms of who is inside my circle and who is outside my circle. Jesus said, instead of you trying to say, who is my neighbor? The question is actually better asked, to whom am I supposed to be a neighbor? In other words, if I am supposed to be a neighbor to everybody, it sort of doesn't matter if they're my friends or my enemies. That everyone is my neighbor because I am everyone else's neighbor. And that changes the rules of everything. I can't, if I'm everyone's neighbor, then no one is on the outside. And that, that's where Jesus goes next. He gives this radical command. Notice verse 44 and 47. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on evil and on good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So what is Jesus, how, how does Jesus upend this uh, uh, sort of previous teaching? is basically when he says that you are to love your enemies, right? You've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, it's important to sort of get the context here. The, the people to whom Jesus is talking, Jesus is not talking um, to, to a group of of. Uh, liberal or conservative pol political people and talking about like, oh, he who must not be named said something on television today and it was really triggering to me and I'm not sure what I should do about it. And it's like, come on. He's not talking about that. I mean, we are so easily offended about everything. We look at everyone, on, you know, if you're on social media and you post something I don't like, suddenly you're my enemy. 
the people that Jesus was talking to here, they were, they were literally um, living under the shadow of, of an occupying army. The, the Romans were there. And so when Jesus tells them, love your enemy, they could look around them and see people that would kill them if they stepped out of line. So for them, it was incredibly radical. And so for Jesus to tell them to love their enemies, is it, is it really that radical for Jesus to tell you to sort of dial back your social media presence a little bit? See, they, they basically they had people there, they had zealots who they thought their duty was actually to hate the Romans. And Jesus says, nope, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he tells them why. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, remember he's talking to followers, and he says, if you're going to be a follower of mine, if, if my Father is going to be your Father, you need to begin to look like your Father. And my Father and your Father loves his enemies. And then he tells us how God loves his enemies. He loves them by, in two ways, by basically showing two different kinds of grace. Uh, common grace and saving grace or special grace. What is common grace? Common grace is basically unmerited favor that God shows to every human being whether or not they acknowledge him. Notice what he says here. It says, for he, God, makes the sun rise on evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, God, God loves all people to the extent that he, he takes care of all people, whether you are evil or whether you are good, you still enjoy the fact that the sun rises every single day, most of the time here in Seattle. Um, but nonetheless, you, the, the sun, the, the rain falls, so you can imagine um, two farmers and, and they, have, they have farms that are side by side and one is a, is a, is a faithful Christian or a faithful Jew and the guy next to him is just a, a, a loud atheist and he just hates everything. Well, when the rain falls, both of their farms benefit from it, right? And so God shows his love, whether or not people acknowledge them, just in the sense that he gives them the air to breathe and the, the sun upon their back and the rain for their crops. So that's common grace. The only problem is, is you need special grace or saving grace to be reconciled to God. In, in other words, we all enjoy common grace, but do you want to enjoy reconciliation with God? For that, you need special grace. And what is special grace? Special grace is also unmerited favor, um, but it's God's basically sacrificial love for his enemies. The, 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 the grace God shows in saving someone is not only love, and it's not only directed at people, but it is directed specifically at people who were his enemies. Who are God's enemies? Well, the answer is pretty simple. It's all of us. All of us by nature and by choice. Uh, start out as God's enemies. Let me read to you a few passages. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Right? So, so in our natural state, we are, are, have set ourselves against God. But the good news of the gospel is that God loves his enemies so much that he gave his son for them. Romans 5 says, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 10, For while if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now 
that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In other words, God didn't wait around for us to sort of get friendly with him. He didn't wait around for us to figure out like, oh, wow, like God seems really nice. You know, maybe I should be his friend. When you and I were enemies, when we were opposed to God, when we were running from God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what God does for his enemies. And that's what he's calling us to do, right? He's calling us to sacrifice. You know, even the, 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 the a verse that's almost been turned into like, a, you know, it, it's been domesticated is John 3.16, right? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Well, the word world there doesn't mean all people and all things like that. The word world there is the word cosmos. And in John's gospel and in his writings, cosmos always means the sort of evil world system that has set itself against God. It's not just like, oh, God loves everybody. That maybe does, you know, but the point is, is that God's love extends to those who hate him and those who have set themselves against him. And so where does that actually leave us then, right? Well, for one, if we're like God, we're going to show common grace. And hopefully by common grace, um, people will begin to understand and see God's saving grace. But it also means that we need to love our enemies. You see, Jesus mentions in the text here that um, verse 46 and 47, he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same, right? They would have heard tax collectors and heard like the worst by almost people in society, tax collectors, tax collectors who didn't like anybody, tax collectors who, who would steal you blind. He says, even tax collectors, they have a few friends, maybe their family, even they love their, their friends and their family. Or, or he says, and if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? He says, do not even Gentiles do the same. So in their mind, the, the worst possible Jewish person still loves his friends and neighbors. And the, the enemy, Gentiles also, even they love their, their neighbors. But you are to be different, he says. If you are going to, to follow me, what it means is that you not only do you not retaliate, but that you actually love your enemies. And so where does that, where does that leave us? That leaves us with, with what he says next is this be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. In other words, he says, here's how you do it. You need to, to be as God is. And that takes us to our last point, which is an attainable standard. Notice verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So now let me ask you this. I, I, my notes um, I wrote LOL on the side. How many of you did I lose when I said this is an attainable standard? Right? When it says be perfect as God is perfect. And now why would I say it's, an, it's a, an attainable standard? Well, let me remind you of two errors that we often make when we read the Sermon on the Mount. There, you can make more errors than this, but for the sake of today's discussion, there's two. The first error is that you read, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and you say, I don't have what it takes. I'm not going to do, I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to bother, right? If, if the standard really is be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, I'm not going to do it because I'm just wasting my time. And you know what? If that was true, that, that's actually not a bad strategy. The, the other strategy is to read this and sort of try and, try and dial it down and say, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. 
right? Or to, to say that Jesus really didn't expect us to follow the Sermon on the Mount. He's just telling us all these things so that it will, will make us despair. And because in our despair, we'll, we'll be driven to the cross. And, and, and that's sort of a very, uh, the kind of view Martin Luther would have. And there is some truth to that because the Sermon on the Mount presumes that you're not going to be perfect, right? It starts that way. Right? The, the, the blessed are those who, who mourn and all of those kinds of things. The, the mourning and the, the repentance is there because it assumes we're going to fail. So if, if on one hand we're tempted to give up and on the other hand we're tempted to just say, well, can't, it, he doesn't really expect us to try this. Both of those errors, we're, we're missing the point. And so the question does it, that you have to ask is, does God really expect us to be perfect? Or does Jesus really expect us to be perfect? And the answer is, it depends, on one hand, on how you translate perfect, right? The word here, um, I personally think it's a poor translation. The word here is teleos, and teleos, almost every other place in the New Testament, is translated as mature or complete. And now remember the context of this whole passage here is love, right? That the culmination of all of the law is love, right? In different places in the New Testament, um, people ask Jesus, you know, or Jesus asks people, what is the summary of the law? The summary of the law is what? Love God, love your neighbor. And, the, you know, Romans, the Apostle Paul has a great section, Romans chapter 13, about this. He summarizes it. He says in verse 8, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to the neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so if, if what it means to be like perfect like God um, is to be completely obedient to the law, well, complete obedience to the law always manifests itself in love. And so, it, and we just saw how God loves through common grace and he loves through saving grace. And so what Jesus probably is saying here, I think, is to be mature or be complete in your, your law keeping as God is. And you do that by loving your neighbor and also by loving your enemy, those outside of you. Now, um, even if Tellius did means perfect here, I think it's still attainable. Why is that? So, so in, in other words, if, if the, the reading should be, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, it's still an attainable goal. Why? Because Jesus is telling us here, when he says be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, all he's telling us is to be what you are. In, in other words, perfection is attainable by faith. The, the, when you, you consider the cross of Jesus, what happens is, Jesus goes to the cross and all of our imperfections, our sins, our imperfect record is credited to him and his perfect record is credited to us. And so now when God looks at you and me, if you're a Christian at least, he sees the perfect record of Jesus. He sees someone who is perfect as he is perfect. And now what Jesus is basically saying with that reading of it is now just be what you are. Right? If you have been transformed and changed and you have now have the record of Jesus, that you, you have all of his righteousness to your account, now just be what you are. Now, by the way, being what you are, completely and utterly righteous, is different than, trying, or is different than attaining that righteousness. 
It's just credited to you. Now you're trying to live into it. That's one of the reasons I love our, in my church, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, when you join, there are five membership questions we ask you, right? The first one is, do you see yourself as a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his wrath? And the second one is, do you trust in Christ alone for your salvation? And, and I love the third question, which I happen to have here. Question number three asks this. It says, do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? And I love that question because it doesn't ask, it doesn't say, okay, now that you're here, do you promise you're going to live like Jesus lived? It doesn't. It says, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, will you endeavor to live as a follower of Christ? In other words, are you going to try? That's what we're being asked to do. Are you willing to try to love your neighbors? Are you willing to try to love your enemies? You see, that's all, that's really what the gospel is asking you to do once you've been saved and redeemed. And as you work out your salvation, as you work out your perfection, your perfect record, you can't get there unless you try. You know, I thought I would uh, basically conclude us this morning by, by asking the question or asking you, what does trying look like for me? Right? Me, me personally, I thought it'd be helpful for you to understand me trying to love my enemies. And so one of the things, <clears throat> about three or four years ago, I came across an app. And the name of the app is Prayer Mate. Right? That's P-R-A-Y-E-R-M-A-T-E. Uh, I use the, an iPhone. And Prayer Mate changed my prayer life. It, ch it changed a lot of things in, in my life. In fact, it's one of those things where the, it gives you five categories of things you can list out to pray for. And it was so dramatic for me. The five categories are free, but if you pay $10, you can get unlimited categories. Within probably 20 minutes, I, I paid the money. And so I'd encourage you to check that out. It's prayer mate. And, you know, so I started making my lists of people, you know, friends and family, and church members. If you're watching this live stream, there's a good chance you are in my prayer mate, right? And so every day, basically, I pray for 25 things and it pops things up there randomly from these categories that I have listed out. And probably about two years ago, I was reading my Bible and came across this passage. And Jesus says, um, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you know what? I was convicted over, you know, over the years, if you're a pastor long enough, you have people who consider you to be their enemy for whatever reason. People who, who didn't like the fact that you changed this or changed that and they get angry at you and they gossip and they slander and they hurt you and they harm you. And I thought, you know what? I need to start praying for my enemies. And so I started making a list and prayer mate of people who, who were enemies. And I'm using that term loosely in some ways. In some ways, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> um, who makes it on the list? What, 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 what was sort of the criteria for someone who made it on that list to be on my enemies list? Well, the criteria is if they'd harmed me ever, right? P personally um, or, or physically even, but even mostly emotionally, spiritually, if they harmed my family, that, that if they went out of their way to do some kind of damage to me, and maybe they still are, they got on the list. Now, one thing that was surprising is how many people were on that list. Um, the, the other thing that was surprised, what do you pray for people like that? What do you pray for people who have harmed you? Frankly, we all have people like that. I mean, as I'm talking, one of the last things I'm going to ask you is to think of someone or people that you need to love and forgive, maybe. And so you start thinking through this list, 
And some of the things I prayed for them was that they would have the grace to see their sin, that they would have the humility to, to, to see their sin, and that they would that God would give them the grace. Remember, it's the, the Bible says the kindness of God leads to repentance, that they would experience the kindness of God that would lead them to repentance. If, if they were mentally ill, right? Maybe they, they harmed, that was a manifestation of their mental illness that they harmed me or someone that I love. Pray that God would heal them of that. I pray that their, their repentance would be as notorious as their sins were. I pray for, for some people that the damage they have caused to the church, that the, the, they would be a bigger blessing because of their repentance. I pray, pray all of these things for people. Now, what are the results? Two years in. <laughs> so the results of praying those things for my enemies for two years is that not one person has come to me and asked me for forgiveness. Not one person has come and acknowledged harm. Not one person has acknowledged anything. Does that mean it's been a failure? I'd say absolutely not. Because what actually has happened instead um, is that it, start, it changed me. You see, when you're praying every day that God would show someone else their sin, what I think he tends to do is he starts to show you your sin. And when you're praying every day that God would show um, someone else, the, the, help them to be humble, well, God shows you your own need for humility. When, when you are praying that other people would repent of the way they have harmed people, it, you cannot help but think of the way that you yourself have harmed people and it leads you to repentance. And so by praying for your enemies, in some, some ways, um, I wonder if Jesus is really trying to get at our own heart, right? <laughs> have you ever seen Hunt for the Wilder People, <laughs> the preacher there? Jesus is tricky like that, <laughs> right? And so what challenge do I want to leave you with? I thought of this this morning. This week, I want you to think of at least one person, at least one enemy, and that can either be someone who, who has like really harmed you, gone out of their way to harm you, or someone who you are just like not reconciled with, and pray for them. And to, to think of some way um, that you might show them love. Now, maybe showing love is it's not going around them, um, but don't, don't not do that. And don't hear me saying gut it out Go in the power of the gospel and instead live it out. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray now that you would, um, you would give us the power and the grace to love our enemies. And in the process of thinking through uh, loving our enemies, we'll see that we ourselves were enemies who were reconciled. We were ones who, who grace to, was extended to us and we were forgiven. And to the extent we understand that, please enable us uh, to love and forgive others. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Typically, at this point in the service, if we were meeting together, this would be the time where we sing the doxology and we would collect an offering and we'd do the offertory and you're still able to give. In fact, you've been giving quite generously. Uh, so we had a session meeting the other night. Thank you for that. The session appreciates your ongoing support for our church. And I'm sure that Samuel has links and things somewhere down here. Um, also, at this point, we would do a profession of faith before we celebrated the Lord's Supper. And absent um, the Lord's Supper, I thought I would do the profession of faith anyhow to close us out. Today's profession of faith is from the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's question number 86, and this is how I'll leave us. So the question is this, we've been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ, and not because we have earned it. Why then 
must we still do good? Okay, let me read that question again. We've been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ and not because we have earned it. Why then must we still do good? Answer, to be sure, Christ has redeemed us by his blood, but we do good because Christ by his spirit is also renewing us to be like himself so that all, in all our living, we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us and so that he may be praised through us. And we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits and so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Let me just send you with this blessing, saying the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen and amen. Until next time.